0: a living history
2: production i'm peter hart and for the last 40 years i've interviewed thousands
1: of i'll give it a rest you're under new management it's pete and gary's military history podcast now
0: Hello and
2: welcome to our latest podcast and this is a big one isn't it Gary? It's a, this is a big one. We are starting our new regimental history of, of, a, of a unit in the Second World War and, w- and, and the one we picked is the Royal Norfolk Regiment and, uh, and we're, we're, going to do, uh, we're, we're going to do our level best to, to bring you the excitement, the pain, the drama everything that happened to, to, to them uh, and today we're doing the pre-war they're training to give you the picture of how they got ready. And we're doing the mobilisation. Uh, and that, that's that's where we're going to start. Um, so this
1: is very much the uh, the equivalent of the South Not Suzars, then. It think. is. It's going to be a series.
2: It's a series on the 2nd Battalion Royal Norfolk Regiment. We're not doing the 1st Battalion. Bugger as you rightly said when I suggested that we include them. I remember you said, bugger them. Uh, no, we're doing the 2nd Battalion. Uh, Royal Norfolk Regiment. So uh, now we've let, let, so let's why are we doing this. Well, we talked a lot about it. the South Tsars, bangy things, guns, artillery. That was all over the place, but the, the the infantry they're at the sharp end of war, aren't they, Gary? It's it's where it really really. It, it's difficult it's it's where it counts and and modern warfare hasn't really well modern warfare up to then it hasn't changed has it uh what's the role of the infantry then would you say well
1: basically the infantry take the ground you can you can soften it up pete as uh, as we've discovered through the, the podcast about the South Lucks as ours you can destroy things you know the artillery and aircraft smash down the defenses uh they destroy communication systems and you can isolate a, a, a particular sector, and, and in the modern war, tanks might crash through and maraud behind the lines. But eventually, you're going to have to have what you know many people would describe as boots on the ground. You've got to have infantry take and hold that that ground. Um, there have been exceptions, so there was a, a, a ground was taken by the air force in the Sicily campaign, for example. Oh, that island!
2: Oh, but that's yeah. A special generally
1: name. speaking. It's it's boots on the ground.
2: Pat, what was the name of it? pantelleria I can't remember. It was a uh, but it was the island they captured. Before. That's a good that's a good shout, Pantellerian, I think. Uh, now, um, so so what are the skills of the ordinary infantry? In, in in some ways, they're divided to two sorts, don't they? So there's, if you just want to train an infantry soldier, uh, a lot of it's simple and repetitive training, uh, and a lot of people reckon you could get that. in a a few weeks uh, six weeks basic training and and then you could claim to be a soldier um, fit to take your place in the line and certainly that's uh, in 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 times of war that's often been the case Uh, but um, there's a different element isn't it to it what what do you think that that is there's a harder part what what do you think that is to becoming a real soldier a, a real infantry soldier I mean, once you're in the line, it's it's the willingness to
1: obey orders in all circumstances. It's it's the granite physical toughness to withstand the most appalling discomforts, the underlying courage to face the inevitable consequences of such blind obedience and endurance beyond the point of common sense uh, or self-preservation. I mean, bear in mind, sometimes you'll be asked to do things as an infantryman that that go against your human nature of self-preservation. So,
2: in essence, what we're talking about here is they've got to do... uh, It's like my dad used to tell me. (laughs) You do what you're told, when you're told, by whom you're told it, whatever the prevailing circumstances. He was a cruel... He was a cruel Victorian father.
1: That's not to say that soldiers don't think for themselves. They do, but it's, it's in a time of crisis... It's knowing that they will obey the instruction, and when they that's get that's the important When part. they
2: get that, that's when they become uh, that. That was the sort of hallmark of the British regular soldier. Something it's gone back. I mean, for de- for centuries they've been respected for, for uh, all the battles we could think of, all the way back through history. We've talked about uh, regular soldiers. They were there at Islanbana. They were there at. Uh, at uh, and the Sudan, they were there at Waterloo. They were there throughout the Peninsula War. They were there stretching back into history. Now, who are... Yeah, they- I
1: mean, the Royal Norfolk Regiment was originally raised by James II in uh, 1685. And they, as
2: you, they were the ninth fort, weren't they? Ninth they th- were the ninth foot then. And as
1: you rightly said, it, it fought in the Peninsula War. Uh, it was sent to Canada, uh, so it missed Waterloo. But it did a stint in the West Indo- Indies. um And, you know... Disease was the big problem there, and and the regiment was completely ravaged whilst there.
2: Then in India uh, and and the Afghan wars, uh, fighting against the Sikhs, fighting against bloody everybody, as far as I could see, uh, that were they fought in the Crimean, Pete? They, they were they were an active regiment uh, in eighteen fifty seven. The ninth became a two battalion regiment, and uh, the, uh, the the their main conflict after that is the Boer War, and then. During the First World War, the Great War, as uh, we call it, uh, the 1st Royal Norfolk Regiment, the 1st Battalion, were at uh, Mons. Territorial Battalions are mobilised, the Kitchener Battalions, and by the end of the war, they'd lost 5,576 officers and men killed, 25,000 wounded. That's a a fair sacrifice by one regiment. Uh, It's a lot. Now, um, in the interwar years, we we all know... um, the, the First World War cast a, a shadow, the Great War cast a shadow, you know, and, and it not helped by a plethora of war poets. So we've discussed war poets recently, didn't we? You loved that episode, didn't you? It was your favourite. Uh, but uh, v- various people had gone on and on. Uh, but it, it's interesting that those that were too young to fight in the First World War, uh, they're, they're, they're going to be old enough to fight in the Second World War. And it's the children of the people who fought in the, the, the First World War as well. Um, now, do you think, do you think young soldiers change, or do you think they're always confident in their own immortality?
0: No,
1: they they, they always they're always confident. They always think that uh, they're immortal, don't they? And it's always going to happen to somebody else. And uh, and and they're tempted, Pete, by by the pomp and the circumstance and, and zest of army life.
2: Well, that what I know? I, I was. I th- I guess, now this podcast is unusual because you really are the person who knows most about this for, for us because I think there are people that would argue with yeah <laughs> now what, what I mean is you've experienced basic training uh with uh, you were in the young soldiers uh yeah I joined junior leaders junior leaders that's it uh sadly they've gone at 16 years old so you've got you're gonna just chime in at times to just give us your experience and and of course it's all changed all changed now Arthur Bruff. He's uh, going to be our first recruit. Uh, he lived in Great Mark Yarmouth, and he's going to tell us why he joined. Here I go. Uh, uh, I was impressed with the service because my brother, he was stationed at Nelson Barracks. He seems to be a pirate, <laughs> which is right near Britannia Barracks. He used to come home with a friend of his, very athletic. Going along the front at Yarmouth, doing Springs, all along the front. He was very fit. And of course, that impressed me. I wanted to be like Big Brother. So, uh, do you think, is civilian life in the 1930s, is that easy for a working class lad? What what tempts them, do you think?
1: No, I mean, there were a lot of low paid jobs. And, and uh, you know, they were plentiful in a town like Norwich, for example. Um but it's, it was often repetitive, it was boring, and it, it lacked any real prospects. Um, some of it would obviously be things in factories, for example, in pretty
2: horrible conditions.
1: So, you know, the army did have an attraction,
2: particularly in time of peace. Now, you're going to be Dick Fideman. Now, he lived in Natch. Uh, what, did, what did Dick say?
1: Well, Dick says they paid a pittance for wages, I had a reasonable education. And hence, he had quite a good accent. I wasn't stupid and learnt very quickly about some things. I knew I was being exploited. Some of them were really unkind and really did take advantage. I think there was a lot of my mother in me. She never would be buggered about. I take so much and that was it.
2: Now, the, if you joined the Royal Norfolk Regiment those days, the, the, the regimental depot was up on the mouse, land, mouse hold common land. Now, I'll be, it's still there. It's just outside, just up on the hill above Norwich. Uh, and it was called Britannia Barracks. Brit- <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, Britannia Barracks. Uh, uh, and and Britannia is the regimental badge of the Norfolks. Um, it's, it's, if you're a bored town boy, a underpaid farm worker, a bored a and endlessly pissed off... Bored, 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 bored... Then the army offered a way out, doesn't it, from sort of humdrum banalities. Um, now, the, the point of no return is when they swear in, <laughs> when they're sworn in. And even now they still do this, don't they? I don't think they give you a shilling or anything. Did, were you sworn in? Uh, I was. And
1: um, I think at the time they did give you a shilling, but they took it back out of your first...
2: Pay, oh the as i've with one hand they give and the other they take away anyway uh, this is uh bert may uh, now he went to he was a recruit at britannia barracks so uh, tell, tell me what uh, bert says about uh, the uniform he was given actually
1: this is dick fidderman
2: oh is it oh yeah oh sorry oh yeah look and he's oh i've got over the wrong page i've turned over oh i'm an idiot I hope, listeners, that was entirely my fault. God, tell me about swearing in with Dick Finiman.
1: You're given a Bible. You take it and take an oath, which roughly goes, "I swear by Almighty God my allegiance to His Majesty King George the Sixth, his heirs and successors, etc., etc." And you get a shilling, the King's shilling. One of the lads, Dennis Pitcher, when he enlisted, he then turn, turned round to go on. I said, "Oh no, my lad, you're in." You don't go home anymore.
2: <laughs> I like that. Now, they're assigned to training squads once they're in. Uh, and and they're held in in, in in the barracks until there's enough there. They need a training squad of about 30. And then their training starts. Now, Dick Fidiman joins at the same time as a chap called Ernie Farrow. His nickname was Strips. They're so good. Why? One wonders why, but yeah. Strips, Farrow, I don't know, Faro land. Anyway, he joined in early 1938. They're posted together to 105 squad in the Cameron block at Britannia Barracks. And this is Ernie Farrow. I remember him well. There we met our uh, NCO, Captain uh, Lance. <laughs> Lance Corporal, seems to be a good day for me today, doesn't it? Lance Corporal O'Shea. He lectured us about discipline in the army. What we should do, what we shouldn't do. He said that now we were in the army, we we would be treated as military men, and that we'd got to forget that we were ever civilians. If we worked accordingly to how they laid the laws out, then we'd have no trouble ever. He really piled it on to us. We wondered a bit if we'd done the right thing joining up, Did you ever have a moment where you wondered if you'd done the right thing? Yeah, mine
1: was on the train on the way to um, uh, Deepcat. Um, I joined the RAOC. And uh, one, guy actually, one guy actually stayed on the train, didn't bother getting off.
2: <laughs> now, they're, they're, they're kitted out with uniform. Uh, this is where I went wrong before. Sorry about this. And the basic equipment to live in the barracks. So this is Bert May. Uh, he was in a different squad, but he he, t- he gives a good account of what they wore. What what does Bert say? It was the old
1: 1914 uniform.
2: The First World War.
1: The fit was beautiful. We had putties that went all the way up to the leg to the knee. Now, we had putties, but our putties all went round the ankle. They didn't go up the legs. The old ammunition boots, a swagger cane with a silver knob at the end. Did, did you have a silver knob? No, nor a swagger. And a pair of gloves, shirts, vests, pants, everything that you had, three of. And that still happened in the late 70s when I joined. You, you got, for example, um, the, the most unattractive long johns imaginable. The, crutch used, the, the uh, crutch used to come down to my ankles. They were lovely. Now, the idea, they said, of that was one pair you wear, one pair goes to the laundry, and one pair is on inspection. You got PT kit, and you had a khaki overall type of thing for messing about. Now we didn't have the khaki overalls; we had barrack dress. But but that was pretty much the same uh, in the late seventies, early eighties.
2: Now their barrack room it was pretty Spartan, wasn't it? Uh, <clears throat> it's in a T shape with beds down the sides, and it had to be spotlessly clean um, to a level that's almost surrealistic. But not to you, because you 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 No, no, I did it, and
1: and we were in Alma Barracks in Deep Cut. Uh, which uh, were about 100 years old then, I think. Uh, so I'll come on to describe things like how they cleaned and boot polished parts of the the, the, uh, the floor and the skirting. And we did exactly that. Uh, we did exactly the same. So this is Dick Fidament again, 105 Squad. And he says, there would be a huge tin of polish. One of the lads would go round throwing it on the floor. Then you would work it in with some rags. Then the guy would come along with the bumper. A thing like a long broom handle, quite thick with a heavy thing on the bottom. Now, we used those as well. And they, I mean, they really were heavy. Big metal uh, um, base plate, I think it was. You could swing the handle from side to side and you pulled it towards you, then pushed it away and you got into a rhythm. You could see a reflection in the floor. You could eat from the floor. It was absolutely spotless. Now what he doesn't say is when you get in the rhythm, it makes a noise. So as you're going from side to side, you get in the rhythm and it goes crack, 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 clack, clack, clack. And and that noise stays with you forever. It's it's quite extraordinary really.
2: And they didn't used to walk on floors, are they? They used to put down No, once you'd done them, you kept off of them. Now, in the middle of the room, it's almost just to make things difficult. There's a big black cast iron stove and a coal bucket. Uh, now, you can see to the army mind, coal dust, ashes. <laughs> I want that spotless. <laughs> I want it polished. I see my arse in it as I walk past. <laughs> so, this is Dick Fiddemont again, 105 Squadron. Uh, t- tell us how he managed it.
1: <clears throat> it was similar to boot polish, only in a large tin. It was a composition of lead jet black. You brushed this on the stove, then when it dried, you had a larger brush and you polished it. By the side was a galvanized coal bucket and it was polished to such a degree that you should be sitting on your bed and the sun happened to come through the window and catch this, you were virtually blinded. The state of the polishing was magnificent. It looked like glass, it really did. Now again, We didn't have a stove in the middle of the room, but what we did have was all around the bottom of the wall, instead of a skirting, was like a black painted line. But it wasn't paint, it was boot polish. And we would have to boot polish the wall and get it shining. It was quite extraordinary, Pete. But when I was reading through this, it, it all just comes flooding back.
2: It, it is quite ridiculous. I knew you'd enjoy this one as we were planning it. Uh, now, it's not just the room that has to be cleaned either, is it? It's, it's everything about your bed space and your equipment, your uniform. It's everything's got to be polished, cleaned and presented just so. Spit and polish, bull, that, that's right at the centre of your army life, isn't it? it? It's an altar at which you worship daily. Uh, so, the, the, so I'm going to read a, a, a quote here. Uh, by Ernie Farrow. He's a 105 squadron with, with uh, Fidiman. The boots, the boots were dull black and Lance Corporal She brought his boots in to show us how they got to be. And you could see your face in the toes of his boots. These boots of ours had to be done the same as his before our first parade. He showed us how to do it with black polish. Plenty of spit and the handle of a toothbrush. We put a polish on, a little bit of spit with it and we boned it into the toes of the boots when the toes were done we had to do the heels by the time we'd finished, we were absolutely knocked up but we did them and we were proud of them
1: now we did um slightly different boots we had dms boots done up molded soles boots and we you know your day-to-day boots exactly as he described it toes and heels uh, but you had best boots as well, and you had to burn down all the leather, the bubbly leather, make it nice and smooth. And then you'd have to do the whole boot in the same way, spit and polish, boring. Um And they had to be absolutely like glass. And then, of course, you wore them, and, they cracked. and that ruined it, <laughs> they cracked. and you had to do it all again. They cracked.
2: Yes. Yeah, yes. Brilliant. Now, every day they'd got a a day's timetable would be posted on on a detail board at the entrance of the Barrett Room. And this is Dick Fidiment. He tells us about that 105 Squadron.
1: There was a board at the entrance of the Barrett Room known as the Detail Board. It was your duty to read whatever was on there every morning. That would give you a list of the day's happenings. Ravelli, six o'clock, do your bed, your ablutions, etc then breakfast then pt then possibly it would say drill from 9:30 for an hour
2: now your own routine now is not that dissimilar is it no it's very similar goes... and i
1: still get a, i still get a list telling me what to do yeah. but it's from you
2: <laughs> oh now um uh, now they've got to prepare their personal kit for inspection And let's look at, at uh, this is how you lay out the bed this is bert may uh, he was in britannia barracks as well what what does bert say gary You'd look at orders
1: and right at the bottom it might say kit inspection or 800 hours. You had to make sure that everything is up to scratch. Your boots are polished lovely. Look at the studs at the bottom. They had to be clean. No dirt was allowed on the sole of the shoe and the studs had to be rubbed over with a bit of emery cloth to make sure they were clean, not rusty. Your uniform trousers had to be pressed and laid out. The jacket, then you'd have your shirt folded in a certain way. Your socks rolled up. That still happened. We used to call them smileys. You would roll them up and make them smile. Uh, And your vest and everything else. At the bottom of the bed, you had what you called the hold-all. That was a piece of cloth about eight or nine inches long, about five or six inches wide, with two ties at one end. It had loops, and you used to have them laid out properly. Knife, fork, spoon, razor, comb, lather brush, button stick, button brush. Then the little envelope at the top was your housewife. That had needles, wool, cotton buttons, that sort of thing. You stood at the bottom of your bed and a sergeant would come in, or an officer. He would call us all to attention. Then we'd stand at ease and he'd come along each bed and have a look to make sure it was laid out properly. If it wasn't, he used to tip it up. Do it again.
2: Now you'd recognise that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we we did something called a bed block which was you'd wrap a blanket around, blanket, sheet, blanket, sheet, and it had to be absolutely symmetrical and spot on from your elbow to your, the end of your fist. And if it wasn't, thrown. Your boots, you'd be on the bed. If they weren't good enough, they'd get thrown out of the window. I was on the second floor, and it had a sash window, and, and the Toonson threw my boots out the window. The sash window slowly closed as somebody threw them back in, and they smashed the window <laughs> But, but sort of thing, it, it happened. You know, these things happen.
2: Now, uh, so they get up, they, they, they prepare the room, perhaps an inspection. Then at breakfast, they, 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 uh, they, the recruits line up and they're, they're ready for their, their, uh, their food. Uh, this is Dick Fidiment again.
1: Most cooks were not very sociable people. As you went past, you would have a mug for your tea, a plate for your knife, fork and spoon. You would hold your mug and they would pour in the tea. Char which is the army name. You could stand your spoon up in this. That was really, really strong. You haven't lived until you tasted army tea. You would then proceed on to the next cook, who would look at you inquisitively, and you had burgoo, which was porridge. He would dive the ladle into this quagmire and bang it on your plate. It really was thick stuff. Then you went on and got whatever it was for breakfast, invariably bacon, egg, etc. Then your bread. Then you would sit down at your chosen table. You'd start your breakfast and a sergeant would walk into the dining hall accompanied by the officer of the day. And he would say, morning, any complaints? He he was a very brave man who stood up and said, well, sir, I'm not too fond of the porridge. I cannot remember anybody being brave enough. Woe betide you. It was a substantial meal. It wouldn't do for any mummies, boy. It would break your heart. Now, that is still true. It's the most important meal of the day. It's Queen's Parade. The army recognised it at the time. And they did say, any complaints? (laughs) No, (laughs)
2: It's changed now. I know the army's changed. They've changed all. That has changed. Uh, the food now is uh, by outside. It's government. external caterers now, isn't it? It is. And our friend uh, Chris Carlin was in charge of the contracts and things. And it, it, it has it's ruined the whole concept, really, of army food. <laughs> uh, now, uh, so after that, uh, perhaps PT. So, Dick Fidiman, tell us about PT.
1: You had to do press-ups, and they came round to make sure you were in the proper position. Arms shoulder width apart, posterior in the correct position, no sagging stomachs. You'd be better good (laughs) then Up down, up down, up down until you thought you were about to collapse. Every muscle and every conceivable bone in your body literally throbbed. And, of course, it was given as a, as a punishment, if, you, if an immediate punishment. Get down and give me 10, 20, 30, whatever.
2: Beasting. Now, you, you were very thin when you were in the army, weren't you? I, I'm not being nasty now. You were. I what, used to nine... box at nine
1: stone, two pound at the time.
2: So you'd be, a, you'd be one of these guys who had to really work at your physical fitness. Yeah, I
1: mean, I was very skinny. I didn't have a great deal of endurance and uh, it, it was hard. But, uh, you know, over time... Uh, you, do, you do get fitter. I've got a photograph. It's the only photograph I've ever had where my chest comes out further than my stomach.
2: It doesn't now. No, it doesn't um, now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, so then perhaps uh, perhaps a spot of drill. Now, I want you to talk about drill after, but let's hear from Dick Fidiman first because drill is so important then and now, any time in the army. Tell us what Dick says.
1: You'd be formed up in your squad and you'd be called to attention. Your rifle would be in your right hand and your left hand would be rigid at your side with the thumb in line with the seam of the trousers. Chin in, chest out. Hollowed back and looking straight to your front. Never moved. Not an eyelid could be battered. He would say, Slay bombs! You brought the rifle up from the floor, across the body, onto your left shoulder, with your left hand grasping the butt and your left arm horizontal to the ground. You brought the right hand down to the right hand side. That was called the rifle at the slope position so that you did it in unison initially you had to shout out when he said slow arms you would say one one two one you all shouted that out so you got the thing going in unison when he gave a command the whole squad would move as one later on you would count mentally and you did this whatever drill movement you made
2: Uh, has this changed no, uh, to pretty, your time, you. Your it, it, your
0: it was time a different.
1: Was. It was a different rifle. It was the uh, SLR rifle, so you didn't do slope arms, and it was the, held in the right arm. But the instructions are pretty much the same, and you still learn by numbers, um, and it, and and it does mean that you you move in unison. Clearly, when you first start, pickler out a step, and you're tripping over the person in front, and that sort of thing. But by the end, you are able to do silent drill, for example, um, and you just move as one unit. It's incredible.
2: Does that give you a sense of pride of working together?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, working together against a common enemy, the drill sergeant.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but it also it, it also reinforces that. That that's your unit, that's your platoon, for example. It gives you an identity as a within a company that is separate from everybody else.
2: Now, as we should have said, when were you in the army? When were you, sorry? Let's talk about when were you basic training? Because basic training, nineteen
1: seventy-eight into uh, seventy-nine, I was a junior
2: leader. Because that, that gives them a, an idea. Because we're not saying it's exactly the same now. Some of these things have. But a lot of it's the same, but some of it's changed. Right, um, now, so uh, the, the drill is important uh, to move as a formed body of men. It It's it it's crucial. But they also begin their, their weapons training on the aforementioned uh, 303 Short Lee-Enfield rifle, uh, the same one used by their fathers, a lot of them, in the Great War. It's an accurate rifle. Uh, people, it, it's got a reasonable rate of fire, but... Uh, but the training is exhausted. It, 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 they start with lectures. Fami- now, you will recognize that the, the process is familiarization lectures, certain then sighting practice, 0.22 range practice. Still did that. They, and then you get onto the real thing. And this is Dick Fidiment again. And he's such a great informant. I remember him well. He lived in Norwich when I interviewed him. You got
1: down in the prone position, you had the rifle in your left hand, you flopped down onto your right hand and ease yourself down. The more often you did it, the quicker you did it. Then you had to lie with your upper torso from the waist straight facing the target and your legs apart about two or three feet to get the balance. You brought the rifle up with your elbows tucked in, the butt tightly into the shoulder. You relaxed until you got the command, LOAD! There'd be a clip of 303, five bullets in one of those iron clips. You opened the bolt. You put this clip in the top of the magazine and pushed down. The rounds would slide out straight into the magazine. You then pushed around up the breech and put your safety catch on. The target would come up. The center of the target was in red. That was the bullseye. The ring next to it was called an inner. Then the next to that was a black circle, which was called the magpie. There was another ring, the extreme, and that was known as the outer. Now, the only difference there is you you loaded the SLR differently. You loaded the magazine separately. And we used figure 11 targets, which are the ones where it's sort of half a man
2: charging uh, rather than a bullseye. Now, there's a, a mantra, isn't it? Uh, and it's uh, get the top of the foresight in the centre of the U and in line with the shoulders of the backside. The sight's suss aligned, focus the mark. Would that be uh, fairly, yeah. common, common yeah, it's fairly
1: common? It's fairly common. And the same
2: thing with the SLR. You
1: had a fore and a four on the rear sight.
2: You mentioned uh, you put the uh, rifle tight to your shoulder. Any reason for that? Well, if you, you, if you didn't, you get a kick.
1: It's like, it's like a punch, I suppose I'd describe so it. So let's,
2: let's hear from Dick Fidiman as well, because as, he's going to confirm what you say, isn't he?
1: <laughs> you aim, aimed your rifle at the lowest central position of the target, which allows for the kick. If you aim at the centre or the top, it would kick up. If you did as you were told and gripped your rifle into your shoulder and pushed your shoulder forward... It was okay. You did feel something. You could liken it to somebody lightly punching you on the shoulder, no more than that. But if you got it wrong, it was a bit more than a light punch, and I'd saw people get bruises from them.
2: Yeah, and sometimes yeah, it's it's it can be bad. Now the the time honoured supplement, the bayonet. Uh, it, it's some ways redundant, but it, it's still a value at close quarters. Uh, it's pretty intimidating. I, I don't know. They didn't have the eighteen inches then. Had they got the short bayonet? Yeah, oh got the can't... short
1: bayonet when I was. Yeah, in I the... thought
2: so. Um, now tell us about uh, Dick Federman's going to tell. He's great, isn't he? He's going to tell us about bayonet training, and then you can tell us whether you did it.
1: They had a wooden frame with five or six sacks tightly packed with straw. There was a disc which represented the chest area of an enemy, and you would be ten to fifteen feet away. Squad, charge! Squad, fix, bayonets! You would bring the rifle and bayonet up with the butt approximately hip height on your right hand side, angled up, pointing to just under what would be a man of average height's chin. You would walk forward slowly, then you would get the command when you were about eight or nine feet away. Charge! Then you would go berserk, lower the bayonet, growl, really become aggressive, lunge at the target with all your might, thrust in your bayonet, all an act of course. You never, ever thought that you would do this in anger. Thank God I never did. And,
2: and uh, did you do bayonet training? Yeah, because it's largely
1: it- the same. Uh, it was it was more used when I was in uh, ceremoniously. So, you know, you would fix bayonets on the parade ground. And there'd be gaps so that would be fixed. you hold, and then it'd be bayonets and you'd clip it on. Um, but we we did it once, I, I seem to recall. And we had exactly the same thoughts afterwards. So we'll never do that. But I, I understand in modern warfare, it is used. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Chris Carling and some of the conflicts he served in, he, he's confirmed that.
2: Now, the first Bren guns are replacing the rather elderly Lewis guns from the First World War. Uh, how many uh, rounds were in a round? I don't know. Uh, and... Uh, They are much better. And you're going to be Dick Fidiman, who's going to compare and contrast with the Lewis and also just talk about the Bren and why he liked it.
1: To see it beside a Lewis gun, it was out of this world. It was like something from outer space by comparison. The Lewis gun was so awkward and such a relic. The Bren gun was weaponry weaponry at its most modern. The magazine held 30 or 32 rounds, 0.303 ball, the same as the rifle. The magazine had a curve, and you just put this on top of the gun, pulled it down, cocked the gun, pulled the bolt back. The safety catch would be applied straight away. It was similar to firing the rifle, lining up the foresight with the back sight. The target would come up and you would fire in bursts of three, a gentle squeeze of the trigger, and you'd fire hopefully into the ball. It was a very, very accurate gun once you got the feel <laughs> of it. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't around late 70s. Um, it was the 7.62 LMG, like machine gun, but but it used parts of the Bren. I remember seeing uh, on the the body of one that I was using, it said Bren on the side. Had a different barrel, but um, it it they it was pretty similar, frankly.
2: Was it just repurposed uh, uh, for for, for NATO style ammunition? Yeah, I think it was.
1: So, uh, the the barrel was different, and you didn't have the curved magazine anymore. And as I say, it used seven point six two um, ammunition, but it was pretty much the same.
2: Now the next weapon, hand grenades. They uh, they used a lot in trench warfare, clearing dugouts, everything else. Number thirty six Mills grenade uh, was a formidable weapon, at, uh, and it's still in use. Uh, uh, still in use then. Now uh, it might still have been use in your time. We'll come to that. Now you're uh, Ernie Farrell. I'm gonna I'm gonna be this one. He's uh, in the same squad, remember, as Dick Fidament. It's quite strange to think of these two guys. It's been trained together. Here he goes. Uh, We went out first on on level ground with a dummy. We were told how to hold this grenade, how to pull the pin out and hold it still. Then we'd point our left arm towards the target. We'd lean backwards with the right hand with the grenade in it. On a command, we would then throw this grenade. We'd have a target to throw it at. As soon as it left your hand, the handle would fly off and release the pin. But as it was only a dummy, we didn't have to worry about it. Then we'd go down on the range, and the NCO would show us how to throw the first live one. He seems to be Australian now. We were standing in these trenches dug so that each man, each man, sorry, had his own little piece of trench to throw it in, so that if anything happened, the next one wouldn't be killed or wounded. The first time you threw the Mills bombs, you wonder what's going to happen. Uh, the only
1: defence against the Mills bomb is pine needles
2: you're referring to uh, 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 our, our, our demonstrating it in Gallipoli, where there are a lot of Yeah, where they make trips. Yeah, very slippy they can be, those uh, pine needles. Now, <clears throat> that's a, a bit of a private joke there. Sorry about that. So that's that train. Had it, had it changed much in your time? No, pretty much the same. Same grenade, or had it, had it actually moved on from the 36?
1: Uh, I think it had moved on, but it's the same principle that it fragmented. I think it fragmented into smaller pieces uh, when I was in... But and you still sort of done an overarmed bowl of it,
2: like cricket, like, like cricket, cricket bowling. Cricket, yeah. Now uh, the camaraderie in these training squads—it's very powerful, isn't it? Uh, so that's you know Dick Fidiment and Strips Farrow. they they, they formed a lifelong partner, part friendship. That's how I got to, to see them both. They recommended each other, sort of thing. When I saw them, now this is Dick Fidament uh, uh, talking about the closeness, and, and we'll ask you about the same thing.
1: What was his was mine, and vice versa. That applied to all the lads. We had little enough, goodness knows financially, but I've seen the cigarette broken in half and shared. The sandwich broken up. It was nothing to see five or six men having a game of cards, sharing a drink out of the same cup. Everything came down to sharing, I suppose I thought more of Strips and my other pals, than my own biological brother. You lived together. To sum it up, your family.
2: That's certainly true of you, because your biological brother is a Spurs fan.
1: Yes. Um, But if you lit up a cigarette or you opened a can of Coke or something when I was in, you would immediately hear somebody shout, Two's up! Now that meant share it. And you couldn't decline. You know, if you're thinking, this is my last fag. But you would share it. And you know, in fact, you do know, I'm in touch with a number of the people that I was in basic training with when I was 16 years old. One of which is my good friend, Mark.
2: Oh, Mark Jackson. Yeah. Major Mark Jackson. He had a successful career in the army, didn't he?
1: <laughs> yeah, I had a successful civilian career.
2: Oh, well, all right. <laughs> now, uh, it's, a, it's a hard life. It was hard for you, I expect. Uh, not, not many luxuries. But uh, this is Ernie Farrow uh, talking about how he got on. Ernie says this, I settled down quite well. I knew I'd signed on for seven years, and I said to myself, you've signed on now, you've got to be there seven years, you've got to take it all. And I did. I just took everything that was coming. Uh, the, the lives dominated by ball. We, I, I expect yours was the same, really. Repetitive routine training, ball um but there's a reason for it, isn't it? What, what, what is the reason for this? Why, why are you then and now trained with ball and repetitive routine training? What's the reason? It's
1: so that the behaviour becomes ingrained and it, it doesn't get swept away in the horror of a moment, you know, and that you, you you get an instant obedience, which helps avoid hesitation, which, frankly, can be fatal. It costs lives.
2: OK, well, this is Dick Fiddemont uh, talking about why discipline's important.
1: The idea of discipline was that when the order comes to stand fast, it can be pretty terrifying because it does happen sooner or later or when you're told to open fire. It's one thing to fire at a target made of paper and wood, and it's another thing to deliberately fire at something that you know is like you, flesh and blood and bone, who has a family, probably married with young children, a mother and a father, that they are doing what you're doing. Because it's the policy of your particular government at the time.
2: So this is what this is what a regular soldier is. He's the the tool of his country, and he's been trained to do what he's told, when he's told, by whom he's told. Uh, now, when you finished with his squads, uh, this is one o five that uh, strips and uh, Dick were in. That they are assigned to either the first or second battalions. They're, 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 remember, there's territorial battalions as well, but that's nothing to do with this. Uh, the, as with the South Otsuzas that we did they were territorials these are regulars it's a different world uh the first battalion where were they 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 were where were they gary
1: well they're in india uh where in uh, 1938 39 they're approaching the end of a 10-year posting as we've mentioned before you had sort of home battalions and battalions abroad in the empire
2: so where were the second battalion then that's where strips and dick fitterman well they they
1: were on the plum short posting of Gibraltar, from March 1937 to January 1939, at at which time they returned to a period of intensive training at Borden, which is near
2: Aldershot, lovely town. Still there, isn't it? I'm not sure. Wasn't that... Anyway, uh, so so that's uh, where they go to. Um, And then you've got the Munich crisis going on in the background, and uh, the training starts... There's a point to this. It's not seven years of army life and then out... Uh, there's a war coming. And this is uh, Private Ernie Leggett. Now, he's uh, at the headquarters company and he's with 2nd Royal Norfolk Regiment. We'll just call him 2nd Norfolks, I think. It makes it easy. That's obviously who they are. Now, what does Ernie say?
1: I realised that I had joined an infantry regiment. When I joined, I didn't realise what the infantry were, that they were the fighting soldiers of the British Army. We were the people that had to do the fighting. All the rest, like artillery and Royal Corps Signals, R-A-S-C, R-A-O-C, hmm, Remy, and all the rest, they didn't do the fighting. They were there to support us at the front line, to give us everything we needed. We were the boys who met the enemy eye to eye, and we would have to do the fighting. There was that apprehension. What have I done? Why did I join an infantry regiment? It suddenly sunk into our brains. Not only me, but other people as well. What the hell have we
2: let ourselves in for? Now, why didn't you join the infantry? I'm not being nasty, but because you joined Royal Army Ordnance Corps. Uh, The other ones he mentioned were the Royal Army Service Corps and the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. But why didn't you join the infantry? I mean, was there a reason or did you? No, no, I
1: mean, a friend of mine joined the Green Jackets, uh, who, you know, sort of, Persuaded me to go along to the Army Careers Information Officer, which was at Tallyhoe Corner in Finchley. But the recruiting sergeant, guess what corps he was in?
2: He was in the Royal Army Ordnance
1: Corps. <laughs> <God>. He was. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So it's the usual thing. Oh, no, you don't want to join the Royal Green Jackets. Oh, they're rubbish, son. You now nah, you want to join the Royal Army Ordnance Corps. Well, That's he persuaded
1: main. me that I'd see much more of the world because you could get posted to embassies around the world.
2: Become a oh, staff no. clerk. Brilliant. Now, um... Uh, so at Borden Camp, let's go. We, we we we're going to Borden Camp. The the second Norfolks. They're they're uh, they're training training, uh, and every year it's sort of uh, individual weapons training, then tactical training by platoons, then company training, and then they move up to regimental and and they start doing the bigger bigger schemes. Uh, so has, that hasn't changed either, has it, Gary? Uh, th- that's all the same. Now officers, <laughs> you might have noticed. Hang on and Gary haven't mentioned officers. That's because they're really peripheral figures, aren't they, during basic training. Was that the case for you, Gary?
1: Yeah, it's all about the platoon sergeant.
2: That's the drill sergeant, the platoon sergeant. That's what matters to you, isn't it? But in a battalion structure, you get more of the officers. And this is, uh, we're going to use Captain Peter Barclay. He was A Company, 2nd Norfolk's. He says this, I controlled the company by direct contact. I, I knew the men j- individually jolly well, and I knew their family background well. I knew which of them were married and this, this sort of thing. Uh, I think they appreciated the fact that one had taken the trouble to find this out. You used to come along with any sort of family problems they'd got. Uh, I think this helped to wield... Weld, sorry, Weld. (laughs) Weld the unit into a close-knit team, which it undoubtedly was. Uh, Now, um, your officers, uh, I mean, there are many stories of you and officers later in your career, but what what did you first think when you met officers? Were they a strange thing, or did you relate to them?
1: Yeah, uh, let's concentrate on the period during basic training. Um, You know, I, (laughs) I would have followed my sergeant, Botfield, pretty much anywhere, I'd have done exactly what he said, without question. I wouldn't have done a bloody thing that Lieutenant Nesbitt told me to do, frankly, because he would have got us killed.
2: Right, Captain Barclay goes on to say...
1: <laughs> I've changed the names to protect the innocent.
2: No, you haven't. No, I haven't. The <laughs> <laughs> first thing, he goes on to say, uh, he's, they're talking... Um, um, this is, a, for instance, and this has become relevant in later episodes. This is how they defended a position. So they have a mock attack on them uh, and and the, 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 how they defend. And he says this. The first thing to do is to smother the opposition as much as you can with effective fire. When you've got a demoralized enemy to contend with, you're, you're going to capture your objective a lot quicker and with a lot less loss. So the first principle was to shatter their morale with fire. It needn't be all that dead accurate. The noise is generally enough to cow the most brazen adversary. So we're moving on. So defense and attack. Once you so he goes on. Once you've done that, (laughs) always ensure that you've got an element giving covering fire when there's an element advancing until you you get right up to the assault distance from the position. Then the leading two platoons go bashing in together. But the longer you can keep your firing going until the moment the attacking forces reach their objective, the more likely you are to succeed and succeed without heavy loss. Those tactics, uh, they're familiar to me from the Great War, fire and movement. Uh, how do you find them?
1: Yeah, familiar to me. And, and I had a conversation with uh, our friend Chris, who said they'd be familiar in modern warfare as well. You still got to. Uh Fire and move, you've got to suppress the enemy to allow you to move.
2: Now, in May 1939, the 2nd norfolk's moved to Oxney Camp, and I don't know offhand, it'll be in the Aldershot area, I expect, but I actually can't think. but bet it's near Oxney. um And uh, uh, they were mobilised at 1640 on the 1st of September, uh, as it becomes apparent that war's coming. And it went like clockwork. This is what Captain Peter Barclay says. Uh, Our reservists joined us all over the place and brought us up to strength with a marvellous contingent of trained men, most of whom had only recently left the battalion. They were simply splendid, a very very good type of man by and large, and I heard no adverse repercussions at all. I I think a great many were jolly (laughs) glad to get back. They fitted straight in then because they had been thoroughly trained during the seven years that they'd done with the colours. Now, um... Oh, I, I
1: bet they were de, deliriously happy to be, to be back. Be on. One yeah. thing
2: is, if you've been out of the army, say, two or three years, do you think you've maintained the requisite physical condition?
1: No. No. Some people would, uh, and maybe infantrymen would, um, but generally, no.
2: And would they be happy to get back? Now, um, that... that
1: <laughs> I'd be very surprised. I mean, some people would, but. But generally speaking, they've they've created lives for themselves in the
2: intervening period. What well, some of them would have got married,
1: yeah. Some of them would have had good jobs.
2: Yeah. Now this is uh, Private Ernie Legger, and he's talking about just 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 the lads coming in, the reservists coming in. Uh, what what does what does uh, Ernie say, uh, Gary? Actually, it was a
1: shame, really, because those people had done their army service. They'd gone back into city street. They were living a normal life and they were called back into the army. A lot of them were killed. They didn't react in a bad way. They were pleased to be back with comrades who they knew. We'd served with them. They talked about civilian life and how they were getting on. Some of them were happily in work, good jobs, but regardless of what job they were in, they had to come back. Some of them had been married, a settled life. Most of them thought it was unfair that they should be called back. We sympathized with them. It was a terrible thing really to be called back.
2: Now there's there's some instances of reservists <laughs> who had literally just left the army and this is a story from Ernie Farrow he's a private then he's with the second Norfolk and he says this about two nights before the war broke out our Lance Corporal Misler Mason had finished his seven years in the regulars and he was waiting to be transferred to the reserve we all went down to fleet to celebrate his d-mob if you like When we got back, we were all in the same tent as Misler, and he'd given us all his clothes away that he didn't want. We'd all scrounced different things off for him. But in the early morning, the elderly sergeant came round, found his tent and said, Misler, hand your clothes in and draw your uniforms out. Everything had been cancelled, so poor Misler had to start to be a soldier again. He must have been delighted. Laughing Misler was, I believe, his nickname from then on. Uh, the whole uh, battalion gets a new battle dress. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's, a, well, it's called a battle dress. It's a new uniform, isn't it? Um, th- it's designed to be more practical. Uh, this is Private Ernie Leggett again saying, saying what he thought of the new battle dress. Because to us now it seems old hat and what we picture soldiers of the Second World War. But it's new in 1939. Here we go, Ernie.
1: I liked it because it was easy. You had a pair of trousers with a big pocket on the thigh of each side where you could put your oddments like maps and compasses. Then you had a small jacket that had two pockets at the top. I found it most comfortable, probably not as smart but easy to wear.
2: Now they're also given new specialist equipment and and uh, we all have, we know about the the, the mighty German panzers. And uh, what 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 do uh, what do the uh, British issue to deal with the uh, the Mark Twos and Threes uh, or whatever it is the Germans have at the time? What mighty anti tank weapon do we get, Gary?
1: The Boys' anti tank rifle.
2: Right, this is uh, Captain Peter Barclay talking about this fantastic weapon of war. It was actually an elephant rifle. We quickly put it through its bases. I fired it myself. It had a, hit, a kick back like a mule. Ha, I can tell you. Uh, it fired just a large bullet. <laughs> but it, it would have penetrated the skin of a three-quarter German vehicle. Uh, I think it would bounce off a tank like, like a pea. And uh, that was... Uh, that's pretty much what happened, wasn't it? It is. It, it, it's, it's bloody useless. Uh, they're also given uh, the, the Bren carriers, which I've never seen without the word ubiquitous just before it. <laughs> and this is uh, Private Herbert Limes. Now he was in the Bren carrier platoon. Um, now, you didn't have Bren carriers in your day, did you? But tell us, tell, uh, you, Herbert Limes will tell us about them. The carriers
1: were to get a Bren gun and equipment from one point to another as quick as possible. In other words, if you had an open flank on either side, that was the Bren carrier's job to go and fill that gap. The Bren would be taken off and the carrier would be taken back a few hundred yards and camouflaged. The driver should have stayed with the carrier, but in practice that didn't happen. The sergeant and the gunner would go forward, scrape themselves a little hole facing the enemy. The driver would be ready for any call the NCO made. Now there's a thousand and
2: one things that have to be done before a battalion's ready for war and who do you think's right at the center and i want you to think of uh, our friend chris major chris carling uh, as you answer this question carefully who is crucial to a regiment in in, in this sort in mobilization
1: the quartermaster he,
2: he is pretty important isn't he he's is very uh, important we'd like to dedicate this uh, this podcast to our mutual friend chris carling who doesn't listen anymore i expect but if he does hi chris you're important uh so uh do you think the quartermaster was uh quiet and calm and during this yeah you,
1: yeah based maybe, on chris's uh nature i would think so
2: not a lot of shouting and swearing <laughs> <No>. it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so it's a it's a bit of a, a symbolic break uh mobilization and getting ready for war they were in the army before but this is this is now wartime. And this is Private Ernie Farrow. He's now in the pioneer section of the headquarter company, at Second Norfolks. So what does uh, Ernie say about this, Gary? I don't know, it's you. Oh, yeah. He's got a G written next to it. It's me. <laughs> As we'd been in the army a certain time, we were allowed to wear civilian clothes. But with the outbreak of war, we had to hand it all back in again. What we did was pack everything that belonged to us personally into a kit bag which we'd been issued with. We were given labels and they were sent back to our home addresses to our next of kin. So that was the last time we saw them till after the war. We didn't feel anything about it at all. I don't know whether we were pleased or sorry. We were at war and this was what we joined the army for and that was all there was to it. We were going somewhere different and hope to pray that we come back home safe again. Well, um, in view of what happens to the Second Norfolks, a lot of them didn't, did they? Uh, and uh, we'll be telling that story. Um, th- th- I think uh, the the Norfolks were known as a steady regiment. And I think in the Second World War, they more than learned that. And that's the story we'll be telling. Did you Did you find that this resonated with you, this podcast? Because did, of your yeah. own experience. I mean, I, I've never been in the army. I wouldn't be allowed in uh, for, for many reasons. But how did you feel as you as you went through these these lads' experiences?
1: Well, I recognised a lot of what they were talking about. And, and most of the time when I was reading it, I had a bit of a smile on my face.
2: And that's unusual for you. It is grim- unusual for me,
1: yeah. Usually a grimace.
2: So that's, uh, that's uh, they're mobilised, they've sent off their civilian hope, it's a symbolic break, they're ready for war, they're going to go to war. We're going to tell that story over the, over the next few uh, weeks and months and I hope you'll join us in that. And uh, if you want to read more about it, I wrote a book about it called, uh, I don't know what, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you more about it next time.
1: <laughs> it's called The 2nd Norfolk Regiment from Le Paradis to Kohima. It's by a bloke called Peter
2: Hart. Yeah, no, it's got got another name. There's a paperback and a hardback. Uh, I think it's called, uh, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I hope you all uh, rush out and buy it. It's a pen and saw book. They've got a paperback version and a hardback version. It's got different titles. That's why I can't remember what it's called. I've got the paperback. Um, uh, Yeah, you would. I I gave you that because I I wanted you to have the cheapest version. Uh, Thank you for joining me on this, Gary. And I'm sure you're grateful to me for joining you and making a load of mistakes. I
1: am. You've made me look good, Pete. Cheers.
2: Cheers, mate. Bye.
1: Bye.
0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com